In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, welcome to another episode of History Hack. We're quite excited, as we always are, Alex, who we got on today. Okay, so today we're going to do something proper on that. So we skirted around, we've recorded, haven't we, a couple about aspects of the US Civil War, but we haven't really talked about anything campaign-based. So today we have with us Joseph Ricci, who is a native of New Orleans but resides in Hammond. Uh, He studies American military history with a particular interest in the American Civil War and World War II. Um, His Twitter bio probably says it's best. While other kids went to Disney World, he went to Battlefields. So Joseph is the host of a new history podcast, which is called Home history with his friend Bo Treisler and he's in the midst of writing and researching for his master's thesis which probably is about as much of a car crash under COVID as people struggling over here but he's also done chapters for two upcoming publications on the Atlanta and Nashville campaigns on the Civil War and this is the key we're going to talk today about the Western theatre which people don't pay enough attention to isn't that right Joseph? That's right Uh, I think the the popular saying around here is that the West is best (laughs) <laughs> uh, so let's, I guess we can dive in. I'm, I'm happy to be here. Happy to be with you and, and Alina. Yeah, let's do it. So, okay. So let's, first of all, let's outline what is the Anaconda plan? This is the, the grand strategy of how to bash the Confederacy from the unionists, isn't it? So what was right. it and who was Winfield Scott? Is he not the last U.S. officer to fire a shot in anger at the British? Well, I'll, I'll start that question by answering the last part first. Uh, Winfield Scott was born in 1786 in Virginia. So he's a, he's a Southerner by, by birth, I guess. Um, he fights in the war of 1812 where he's wounded at Lundy's lane. Uh, and this, this, his reputation throughout the war propels him to, uh, a national hero status. Uh, he masterminds the victory in the war, uh, the Mexican war and, the really important thing about Winfield Scott is that he is a good general, a really sound strategist, but he is a clumsy politician. And between the Mexican War and the outbreak of the Civil War, he's actually going to be nominated to run for president, um, fails miserably. And by 1861, he's 75 years old. He is well past uh, retirement age. If this was the modern day, he would have already have started collecting his Social Security benefits. Um, but here, here he is in 1861 in command of the entire Union Army. Uh, he is the guy. He's the, the general-in-chief of the Army, the commander-in-chief of the Army. And war breaks out, and he starts drafting a plan on how to beat the Southern Confederacy. Uh, and he puts together the Anaconda Plan. And now this is the, the sort of forward thinking that is going to help the Union Army win the war. In fact, it's one thing that I give a great amount of credit to the Union war planners in the beginning of the war is having the foresight to see past the first 90 days. Scott is the leader of that group. And this plan, the Anaconda plan, because of, if you think about it, look at a map of the United States and wrap an Anaconda from the Gulf of Mexico all the way up the eastern seaboard, that makes sense. And you have the Anaconda wrapping and choking and strangling. 
Um, this plan is to starve out the Confederacy. It will, this blockade, this naval blockade, will stop the flow of imports from England and stop the exports of cotton from the Confederacy to England in order to make money. Uh, now, of course, there's already one problem is that in 61 or 62, the date is just, it's slipping right now. Um, Jefferson Davis, the president of the Confederacy, actually puts an embargo on trade with England over cotton. And he basically says, he's like, well, you know, the, the Royal Navy will come and help us if they need their cotton. Well, the British have actually been stockpiling Southern cotton for years before this. So there's no shortage. They don't need it. And plus it gives you the ability to Egyptian cotton. That's where it comes from. Um, I've probably simplified and glossed over a lot of things there, but big picture, that's the end result. Um, so the, there's a couple of key components to the Anaconda plan. Um, one part is that you need to take a blockade around the eastern seaboard in the Gulf of Mexico. Um, the second part is that it requires control of the Mississippi River. And this is the father of waters, the mighty Mississippi, Big Muddy, all these nicknames. Um, but it is the lifeline for the entire United States. And it's really the lifeline for the Confederacy at this point. Um, but by capturing the Mississippi River, you effectively split the Confederacy in two. Supplies that are coming from Texas, which is producing uniforms, food, um, ammunition, and weapons coming from Texas and coming from the blockade in through Texas and, and across the Mississippi River. Once you take the river, you can't do that anymore. Um, and this, of course, the last piece of the puzzle is a thrust inward through the the heartland of the south so come through mississippi into alabama go through tennessee and georgia and and put one body blow into it um now this plan though is uh at first when winfield scott rolls it out as the strategy uh people look look around and say who is this old man when why is he telling us how to command this army uh Granted, yes, he's in he's in charge of the army. He's the general in chief, but at seventy five years old, he needs help getting on his horse. He's got a nickname that follows him around. He's old fuss and feathers, um, and and it has to do with he's sick. He has dropsy, um, and he's he's old. He he's looking around at a room full of twenty eight, twenty nine, and thirty year olds, um, and putting forward this idea of how to win this protracted and prolonged war. And everybody in the room thinks that they can get this war finished in 90 days with one big battle. So we're here to talk about the Western theater, just break down the importance of the Eastern popular front. Yeah. Um, so the, the, and I guess one thing I should touch on real quick too, um, is the, this idea of the one battle, this 90 day thing, um, as a military historian, I look at wars from three levels, the tactical, the strategic, and the operational. This is all really basic stuff. But these guys totally missed it. If you thought you could win in one big fight, you're, you're not thinking in terms of war production and enlistment. Uh, so that, that, that almost voids out the operational level uh, of the war. And, and that's, again, another credit to Scott is that he had the forward thinking and the years of experience to, uh, to acknowledge that. But to your question on, on the importance of the East, um, 
First, geographically, uh, the Eastern Theater is everything that takes place in Virginia, Maryland, and Pennsylvania. Um, the two principal armies there are, are will become Robert E. Lee's Army of Northern Virginia. And it's hard to put a name to command the Army of the Potomac, so I call it the Revolving Door. Uh, but you've got um, McClellan, Hooker, George Meade, John Pope. It's a continuing flow of generals that will come through. Um, and, and of course, this is a smaller, uh, in terms of geography, a smaller area to cover uh, with these two armies. So the, the Eastern Theater sees really intense and brutal fighting. And, and, and my favoring of the Western Theater isn't to discredit what went on in the East. Uh, but from a, a strategic standpoint, there's a clear winner on which theater is a little bit more important. Um, but the battles that, that make up the Eastern theater, if you're, if you're an American, you know, high school student, uh, um, and, and you're interested in this, you get three battles when you're in high school, you hear first Manassas, which is actually, we're on the anniversary of today. Um, you get Antietam or Sharpsburg. And you get Gettysburg. And then all of a sudden, somehow, magically, the war is over in 1865. We don't know what happened those last two years. Uh, they're a mystery all on their own. And then suddenly, we blast through a decade of Reconstruction. And all of a sudden, we emerge in the 1880s somehow. Um, but I digress. The, the Eastern Theater, going back to where we're at, um, these battles that I mentioned, Antietam uh, and, and Gettysburg, both give huge political gains to the Union Army or the Federal Army. Um, at, after Antietam, Abraham Lincoln is assured enough. Granted, Antietam is a draw, technically, um, but it is a, a political victory in that they forced the Confederate Army out of Maryland um, and don't have a threat on Washington, D.C. In, in that capacity anymore. Uh, and Abraham Lincoln, the president of the United States, is assured in his, his initiative to go ahead with the plans for the Emancipation Proclamation, uh, which he'll, he'll draft almost right after the battle, and it'll be released soon thereafter. Um, and it states that in January of 1863, all slaves living in states of rebellion are free of captivity. And they are emancipated. Now, the, the, the proclamation comes out, and now we're already into 1863, and we go into July of 63. Um, Lee's army has moved out of Virginia again, gone through Maryland, snuck through the Blue Ridge Mountains, and emerged in Pennsylvania. Uh, they're behind Washington, D.C. now, and there he is again. Lincoln has to change commanders. He, uh, Joseph Hooker is out. George Meade is in. Meade meets Lee in Gettysburg, and they fight a three-day battle, which it gets a lot of credit because it is the largest land battle in American military history. Um, we know it because of its size and the casualties, and the morale factor that it has is for three years, Robert E. Lee has beaten, or for two years, Robert E. Lee has beaten the Union Army on almost every battlefield that he fights on, every major engagement the Confederates have either won or have outmaneuvered the Union general and evaded battle. Gettysburg is different. Gettysburg is a decisive defeat, but no one army leaves Gettysburg 
without being able to wage war again. It doesn't take away anybody's fighting capacity. But we still regard Gettysburg as this big major battle in 63. But to call it a turning point might be an overstatement. Mm. Um, but those, those Eastern campaigns have a, a, a lack of, of an impact in a strategic sense. But uh, I think we have, we've got more on that here in a minute. <laughs> yeah, we have. So, I mean, historians are still arguing about what was more important. So let us move over to the Western theatre and make the case for that. Um, you, you just mentioned strategically, those Eastern campaigns aren't deal breakers, are they? Right, right. Uh, the West has, has a few advantages in that by 1862, there's a really clear picture of how this war is going to end. Um, while we're obsessed with all of the Union defeats from 61 to 62 and 63 in the East, we kind of tend to overlook all the victories that are happening in the West. And, and this, there's this idea that comes down through all the histories really until the last maybe 60 years um, that, that give this idea that the Eastern theater is so important because you're fighting over Richmond and you're fighting over, over Washington, D.C., but in 1862, the Union Army is already on the Mississippi River. Uh, in, in February of 62, February 6th, actually, um, U.S. Grant, Ulysses S. Grant, is in command of, uh, of, of his soldiers there in, at Fort Donelson and Fort Henry. Mm. And they are right there on the Tennessee and the Cumberland Rivers. Um, and by capturing those two forts, they have secured a waterway that will get their boats from Paducah, Kentucky, down into Tennessee. And from Tennessee, they can navigate into the Mississippi River. Um, really, if you lose Fort Henry and Fort Donaldson, everything else in this giant, uh, this, this defensive line that stretched from Arkansas all the way into Kentucky, everything in that line is hung up in jeopardy at this point. Mm. Um, and by going into Fort Donaldson and, and, and seizing Fort Donaldson and Fort Henry, U.S. Grant is actually lifted to this, uh, this status. He, he gets his nickname here, U.S. Unconditional Surrender Grant. Uh, he gets this, this name here uh, when he goes and he, he accepts the, the surrender of the forts and uh, his, his Confederate counterpart asks for terms and he says there are no terms, only unconditional surrender. And all of a sudden, this guy who is relatively, you know, he, he's emerging from a, a period of disgrace uh, and retirement out of the army. He actually left the army and then came back um, in, in 61 as the war broke out. He's elevated to a, a hero status. I, I think the story is right after Fort Henry and Fort Donaldson. Um, somebody found out that he smoked cigars. And so all of a sudden, he's just bombarded with thousands and thousands and thousands of cigars. And I, I think one, one uh, little side, I guess a side note uh, story is that at any given day, on any given day, he could smoke anywhere from 15 to 23 cigars in a day. Mm. Uh, and it's all, a, a lot of them are these Fort Henry and Fort Donald's <laughs> cigars. His breath must have been rank. <laughs> it must have smelled awful too. Yeah. <laughs> Ulysses Grant, Stinky General. <laughs> I, well, I mean, Stinky General, but all around really cool guy. Yeah. Uh, he's a, a, a totally interesting guy. And uh, there's a couple of really good biographies on him that have just really, in the last couple of years, reshaped uh, 
the way you you're supposed to look at Grant because for for so long you think of him as the butcher and that comes from his roles later in the war, um, but he's he's just this incredibly complex, really really fascinating guy. We could do a whole whole episode on U.S. Grant, um, but I, again, I digress yet again. Um, and we and, all do. Don't worry. Yeah, yeah, we do. We basically make a make a habit of doing it in every podcast. It's fine. People are just interested in history, so it, it's good. Our listeners are very understanding of our waffle. Right. <laughs> um, so another another really important thing that happens in sixty two, and I'm sorry if I'm getting a little ahead of myself. No, is, go for it. Is uh, in, in April of eighteen sixty two, uh, New Orleans, the city that I'm only sitting about an hour north of right now. Uh, is captured by the the Union Navy, the United States Navy, uh, under under at that point flag officer uh, David Farragut and his brother uh, David Dixon Porter. <laughs> They're actually both there. Um, we'll and, get and, to them later. <laughs> <laughs> um, but but New Orleans is in in many senses the crown jewel of the South. It's the South's largest and richest city. Uh, it turns out more manufacturing goods at at that point in the sixty two than any other city in the South, and it has the Confederacy's shipbuilding uh, manufacturing is is there in New Orleans. The the Hunley, the submarine that will eventually go on to sink the Housatonic uh, over in 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 the Carolinas, is actually being the the keel of it is being laid in new Orleans right before the, the, the union, the federal fleet shows up and they have to very quickly move the Hunley off to mobile and then eventually get it to Charleston. Um, but it's, it's here in the city. And when new Orleans falls, there's this idea that the, the river, the gateway to the South is open now. That's it, um, isn't it? That's where the misses, the mighty Mississippi drops out. Absolutely. It's the, the mouth of the river and it's really cool. If you get a, you know, like an overhead shot from, from space, you can actually see the river dropping out through Louisiana mm. and uh, you have to imagine what it must've been like to be, to be Farragut uh, that night going up the river and you've got the Fort, Fort Jackson and Fort St. Philip firing uh, right over the top of your ships and missing you completely as you just, you run the guns and get to mm. New Orleans. Uh, and, and, you almost have to stop and think, didn't they know how valuable New Orleans was? Wouldn't they have understood that they needed more than just two forts and a handful of guys to defend the city? Um, it, you, you th- I, I'm, again, being from here, I can look at these defenses. I can drive down to Fort Jackson and Fort St. Mm. Philip, and I can, I can stare at the river and go, they really thought they could defend it with chains? And railroad ties. Uh, <laughs> it's just one of those hindsight things, isn't it? And you're like, who was in charge of this? And yeah, why, yeah. They, why did their head not roll? But um, <laughs> so that's 1862. So disastrous for the Confederacy. What happened in 1863? Well, uh, 63 is a, a it is a turning point year in a sense. And everybody that is a big fan of the battle of Gettysburg, their ears will perk up when I say that. Cause they'll think, Oh, he's about to sing the praises of this little town in, in, in Adams yeah, County. Pennsylvania. Forget but Gettysburg. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I, Vicksburg is Vicksburg is the key that, that becomes the, the later, the later quote about it. 
Um, but the Battle of Vicksburg in Mississippi, it is a basically a, a, a it's about three hours north, four hours north of New Orleans. Uh, so New Orleans falls in April of 62. And in between New Orleans and Vicksburg is a place called Port Hudson. Um, geographically, an hour and 15 minutes from my house. Uh, <laughs> and it is... It's going to hold out. It's actually Port Hudson will hold the the record in American military history as the longest siege. Uh, it starts really the the first assault is in uh, April of sixty three and it doesn't lift until July. Uh, so it beats Vicksburg by just about a month. Um, but Port Hudson is here. Vicksburg is just north of it, and these are two Confederate strongholds on the Mississippi River. Um, Port Hudson being commanded by General Franklin Gardner, a New Yorker by birth, but a Confederate by enlistment and by commission. Um, and then in uh, Vicksburg, you have John C. Pemberton. He's in command of the Confederate Army there. And Vicksburg is this, it's a city right there on the river, but it is built up high on these bluffs and they just sort of raise right out of the shore. Um, and it's, it's an incredibly strategic and very, very well-placed defensive position. If you wanted to defend Vicksburg, it's very easy to do it. Um, the, the topography of the land lends itself to a good and capable defense. Um, but in 63, coming down from, uh, down from the north, coming through the Mississippi River, down through the Mississippi River, is uh, U.S. Grant. And he brings along his army. And he's got uh, David Dixon Porter's gunships with him. Uh, and they will actually run the guns of Vicksburg and come down to the south of, of Vicksburg in between Vicksburg and Port Hudson. And Grant is going to disembark his, his army there. And they're going to spend almost a month trying to figure out how to get from the north side of Vicksburg down south to start this Grant's campaign. Um, and there in, in May of 63, they end up laying siege to, to the city of Vicksburg. And by July 4th, the city falls and surrenders. Um, and by the end of this, this campaign for Vicksburg, the Confederate garrison inside of it, it they're starving. Um, mm. The civilians that live in Vicksburg are eating horses that are died in the street. They're just going out and cutting the horse and, and bringing it inside and eating it. When those die off, rats um, and there's even stories and, you know, you can gauge the, the truth value into it. Um, for every myth, there's a little nugget of truth, I guess. Um, the civilians were tearing off, uh, their wallpaper in their houses and, and boiling it to get the, the, the proteins from the glue out of it. Um, so a very desperate situation in Vicksburg, uh, but Grant takes the city. And he is, again, promoted to the national spotlight. How and, many cigars this time? <laughs> right. <laughs> um, uh, and, and Abraham Lincoln will actually say, you know, that he has taken, the, taken Vicksburg. And he says, Father Waters flows unvexed to the sea once more. I think uh, one thing that's becoming really apparent, you keep talking about moving north, is the fact that they are using the river. The river is everything, isn't it? They're going absolutely. If they keep going north along the river, the Confederacy is screwed in that. So I want to press the Navy with you. Tell us about the use of gunboats and monitors, etc. What does the term brown water navy mean? 
So the Brownwater Navy is essentially kind of what we've been talking about. All these mm. these boats that will go up and down the river, and they're 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 gunboats essentially. Um, a lot of them are old riverboat steamers that have been converted. Uh, they're called cotton clads or tin clads, uh, or just simply gunboats, and they're a very simple, low low to the water design. Um, they ride low on their water lines, but they're packed with you know, six, 12, sometimes even more than that, maybe 20 guns on board. And they, they are able to navigate through these shallower, uh, shallower river bodies or waterways anyhow, uh, to navigate through the South. Uh, they're used extensively in Tennessee on the Tennessee and, and Cumberland rivers. Um, down here in Louisiana, they actually use those same gunboats to take Port Hudson and eventually will take Vicksburg. Um, and it's the same story out in uh, the Red River campaigns. The same same types of boats are being used. And they make up the Brown Water Navy. It's, uh, they're not uh, uh, deep sea uh, ships. You'll have to forgive me my naval terminology. Probably <laughs> it's better than Alina's. Boat, oh, boat yes. thingy it's, it's a running joke on this podcast how much she sucks with naval stuff so you you have got a long way to go before you get down to her level it's a boat it's, it's all about they're all boats it's just a boat thing <laughs> right everything is a boat and and I, I look back over my shoulder and i've got the the naval records of the civil war right there and i can feel the heat coming off of them for every word that i say is that uh, also churchill in the background that is um yeah <laughs> He's he's actually our our I won't say he's our mascot, but he's our figurehead for our podcast. Um, oh, my granddad! Picture, he's actually saying, apparently. "I want you to listen yeah. to." Um, oh, that's awesome. Um, but yeah, again, we fell off. But uh, the the naval terminology thing—that's where boats, all the boats. Um, but the Brown Water Navy is I mean, it. It will come up again in uh, about a hundred years in the Vietnam War, uh, and they're they're same type of story there. These shallow drafted boats that can navigate through rivers, but the the deep water navy, the blue water navy, um, they're the ones that are leading the blockade, and the brown water navy are the boats or ships uh, moving <laughs> through the the rivers and tributaries of of the the, the continent, or the body of the, the land. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. So how did the Navy and the Army work together and combine arms to keep bashing the Confederacy? Well, uh, I think the, maybe the, the best example is Fort Henry and Fort Donaldson. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and that going back to February '62, that's Ulysses S. Grant and Andrew Foote working totally in tandem of each other. Uh, Grant waits for Foote's boats to shell the forts before he can move any men towards the uh, the Confederate positions, and then eventually, after a period of bombardment. Grant's able to assault the works and face relatively low casualties. Um, again, here in Vicksburg is another example of this perfectly, a uh, perfect union of combined arms is Grant and David Dixon Porter. They're working hand in hand and, and, and almost interlocked and interstep with each other. Uh, as they go down the river, Grant knows he needs these boats to move his army. Porter knows that he needs the soldiers to be able to capture Vicksburg. You can't do it with boats alone. Uh, they actually tried that. Uh, they tried to just shell the city from the south of the, of the Confederate positions there. And all it did was make the Confederates strengthen up the earthworks. Um, so you need to have both in, in, in that sense. Um, but those are, I mean, two of the best examples I can think of is the Port Hudson and, and or, sorry, Vicksburg and, uh, and Fort Donaldson and Henry. Um, one of our most avid listeners, if not the most avid listener, is in love with what you're talking about today. It's like his favourite topic of conversation. Um, he has declared that David Farragut was a god. He says his brother was a sneaky political backstabbing dickhead. But <laughs> why was David such a big deal? Um, I, I think it's just his, it's especially in, in New Orleans and in Vicksburg, he works, well, at least in New Orleans, he works with his brother as the... The, the captain or the, the commander of the mortar boats that are going to lay down fire on the forts uh, at Fort Jackson and Fort St. Philip. And then in Vicksburg, he has, he actually shows up and demands the surrender of the city. Remember I said that they tried yeah. to take it by gunboat alone. Um, he shows up and sends, uh, sends one of his staff officers ashore to go and take the city surrender. And they reply basically, you know, stuff it. <laughs> and gets back on his boat and goes back north of the city. Um, but but I think Porter is is another example of a guy that just capitalizes on the the politics of the war. Um, he knows who to be friendly with, and he knows who to have animosity towards. Mm. And it, look, as a as a guy that studies the uh, later later war campaigns, you know you've got guys like we'll talk about them later, but. John McAllister Schofield and and George Thomas. These are two guys that knew who to please and who not to please and had success and defeat to varying capacities. Um, and I think I think Porter's a, another example of that. He just knew who to who to be close with. Mm. That and he's good at his job. So why do you refer to 1864 as the year of reckoning? Well, this is finally my year. This is the <laughs> boom. Uh, we've arrived. Right. <laughs> um, I I think that after Vicksburg, there's the the sort of this instant idea of okay, what do we do next? Um, and over in the in in the well, a little bit more to the east in Tennessee is William Rosecrans, General William Rosecrans and his army of the Cumberland. It's the Union Army moving through Tennessee and they've fought um they they fought in Kentucky and now here they they fought in Sh- at Shiloh and in, in North Mississippi and Tennessee. Um and now they're finally 
in in, in Chattanooga. Um, they move into battle in September of 1863 against Braxton Bragg's Army of Tennessee. They fight at Chickamauga. Uh, and had it not been for George Thomas and uh, General Gordon Granger, perhaps that army might have been defeated in the field. But they managed to escape to Chattanooga, where they're encircled uh, by Braxton Bragg's army. Well, just a few months later, along comes Ulysses S. Grant from Vicksburg with William Tecumseh Sherman uh, and their army of the Tennessee, and, and they arrive, and their army of the Ohio, and they arrive, and they encircle Braxton Bragg's encirclement of William Rosecrans. And Grant takes command. And this is what you want from, from a guy like U.S. Grant. Again, I'm simplifying a lot of things, mm. but he moves to Tennessee and he brings this idea of total war and unconditional surrender. And that's picked up almost immediately. They break the siege at Chattanooga. Uh, the Battle of Missionary Ridge will, will force the Confederates essentially out of the state of Tennessee. They'll, they'll move to Dalton, Georgia. And at that point, Lincoln looks at U.S. Grant and says, I need a general that will fight. And he brings Grant from the west to the east and puts him in command of the army. And he'll oversee all the operations in the east from 64 on. He leaves behind, though, two really capable commanders in William Tecumseh Sherman and George Henry Thomas. And when they they wage this war through Georgia, and this starts uh, where Sherman sees an opportunity in the west and Grant trusts Sherman in the same way that Robert E. Lee would have trusted a Stonewall Jackson or James Longstreet in this period of the war. Um, he looks to, to Sherman to, to wage war the way that he has been doing it. Um, and this starts off the, the Atlanta campaign. And this starts in, in, uh, in, in May of 1864, Ulysses, or, I'm sorry, um, William Tecumseh Sherman will move out of Chattanooga and start pushing Joseph Johnston's army from Dalton all the way back to Atlanta. And they move uh, hundreds of miles and from May to July of, of 1864. But the, that, that move east is really starting to change, especially when we get to Atlanta. Uh, since New Orleans has fallen and all these other major Confederate cities have been captured, all these depots, all these manufacturing facilities have been captured. Atlanta is now the prize. It it's is huge, isn't it? It's gigantic. Um, um, is this the bit in Gone with the Wind where Atlanta catches fire and all that shit goes down? Right. Actually, yeah. just after that. Okay. But, uh, but, I mean, man, that's... Using that's that a, as my historical point of reference. Right. <laughs> Tell us about Joseph Johnston as well. Um, Johnston, he's actually, he was in command in the East, um, and he's wounded pretty early on in the war, uh, and that his, his wounding will actually elevate Robert E. Lee to command the army in Northern Virginia. Um, he is not a political ally of Jefferson Davis. The two don't seem to get along basically from the word go. Um, uh, but now here in Atlanta, Johnston is being described as a man that is genetically predispositioned to retreat. Um, What's the other quote about him? Uh, let's see, which one? A man, a man with a physical disposition to retreat. 
Um, and they say that he's always of the defensive mindset. And that's true even in the, in the Eastern campaigns as well. And now he moves to, to Atlanta where he is, he's moved back across all of Northern Georgia, uh, from Dalton to, again, to Peachtree Creek, just across the Chattahoochee river. He, he's basically has just given all of this ground away and, the guys in Richmond, all the, the war cabinet and the, the Confederate Congress and the Confederate War Department and Jefferson Davis are all sitting around looking at each other saying, you know, when is he going to fight? When is he going to do something? All this time that he's been retreating, Leonidas Polk, a Confederate general, um, William Hardy and John Bell Hood have all been writing, and they're all commanders of the Army of Tennessee, have all been writing to Jefferson Davis saying, look, you've got to do something. You need to step in. You need to make a decision. You need to put somebody else in command. And finally, on July the 16th, Johnston reveals that his plan does not call for an offensive (laughs) fight around Atlanta. And Jefferson Davis goes, all right, well. You're fired. Please leave and don't come back. Uh, and, what, did, and what was his reasoning behind that? Behind not fighting the the an he, offensive campaign? Yeah, I, just I, let them have it. Or I, he is he's trying to go for the age old idea of trading space for time. Okay, you just you just give as much ground as you need until you can find a, a place to fight on a field of your choosing. Well, the problem is from Dalton to Atlanta, he passes several battlefields of his choosing. He has really good positions at Kennesaw Mountain and, and all these really great spots along the way. And he gives them up in favor of retreating. Uh, a lot of it is wanting to keep his army intact. Um, there are so many stories of soldiers that called him Uncle Joe mm. or, uh, you know, they, 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 they loved Joseph Johnston. Why? Because he, he kept him alive. Yeah, they didn't have to die as much yeah. uh, under Joe Johnston. There, there weren't a lot of a lot of offensive campaigns to deal with. You, you were always behind earthworks, uh, or you were always in a position where, if the Union Army under William Tecumseh Sherman and George Thomas, uh, if they showed up, you could move pretty quickly and get away from them. So what's and the finally, difference? Here we are at Atlanta. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> So what's the difference between him then and the guy that replaces him, John Bell Hood? Uh, I have been told that it's been said he is responsible for more Confederate casualties than any Union general. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know that I would, I wouldn't put that on him. Yeah. Um, uh, he's a Kentuckian by birth. He's born there uh, and he'll go to West Point. And a lot of people will, will say that he was dumb. He graduated 44th out of 53 in his class at West Point. He's really low. Well, consider that the class he started with had 156 students and only 53 of them graduated. He's pretty good. Mm. Uh, Of the 200 limits or the 200 demerits that he's limited to, he gets 196. Um, He's not a disciplined guy, but he's, he takes care of his own stuff. Um, and he's a really tough and determined fighter. They learned that in the Eastern theater of the war, he fights in the army, Northern Virginia from 61 to 63. Uh, he's wounded twice in 1863 at the battle of Gettysburg, a, uh, an exploding shell goes off right above him and shreds his left arm. 
Um, he keeps the arm, but he can barely use it. it mm. the, the muscles in his hand are about the only thing that function. Everything else is, is sort of withered and, and, and worn and battle scarred. Um, so the left arm is, is essentially useless. And then at the Battle of Chickamauga in September 63, he's shot in the right leg just, a, just beneath his hip. And of four men that they attempt this amputation on the entire war, or sorry, of all the men that they attempt this amputation on throughout the war, only four of them survive, and one of them is John Del Hood. His right leg is amputated four inches beneath the hip. Um, so he has no right leg and no use of his left arm. Uh, he's, I think Nathan Bedford Forrest calls him half of a man. Um, but to me, he almost looks like he's, you know, not willing to back down from this fight. Um, he has an aggressive stand at Antietam in 1862. Um, and then finally we're here at, at Atlanta and he has fought with Joe Johnston. He has retreated with Joe Johnston and Jefferson Davis says, I know John Bell Hood will fight. Mm. Now it also helps that Jefferson Davis and John Bell Hood are friends. When Hood was in Richmond convalescing from his wounds, he became friends with Jefferson Davis. So again, it's helpful to have political allies when you're an army commander and Hood gets in with, with Davis. Um, and finally, they, he's able to take command on the, the 17th of July. And three days later, he's tossed into a fight that he really isn't prepared for at all. Um, he's only just taken command of the army. He actually has no idea where one whole wing of his army is. It's never um, a good start in a battle, is it? You, you should know where people are. Yeah. At least have an idea. But he he knows that they're there. He just doesn't know their exact position because it hasn't been disclosed to him. So he's riding the line as best as he can uh-huh. uh, to to put his, his army together in this defensive position. And the plans that he's given from Joe Johnston, everything that Johnston says he's going to do, all involve fighting at Peachtree Creek. So Hood basically says, well, I'll just inherit this plan and go with it. And that's what he does. Um, And then Atlanta will fall by September of 63 uh, with Hood in command. And finally, there's there's at least a glimmer of hope with Atlanta. Uh, Sherman is fiercely opposed to the idea of of leaving the city as it is and bypassing it. So he's going to take it. That's been his goal all along. Um, And once they take the city and Sherman moves in, Hood is forced out. And this does a lot of things. Uh, I mentioned the political strengths or the political components and factors of the the victories in the East. Mm. This one is incredibly important because it's just before the election of 1864. And right now, Abraham Lincoln thinks he's going to lose. And if he loses to peace Democrats like George McClellan, who was former commander of the Army of the Potomac, is now turned a Democratic uh, presidential candidate running against his old boss. I'll see. (laughs) uh, he, He says... Lincoln Lincoln does believe he is going to lose this election. And this victory at Atlanta 
is news that he can put out and say, look, I sent my best guys down south. I've got Grant working here against Lee. I've got William Tecumseh Sherman down in the south, and look at what we're doing. If you vote for me, I'll get this war over with. And the Peace Democrats are still saying, you know, if we win this election, we'll find a way to bring an end to the war. Lincoln is promising that he will reunite the country and defeat the Confederate army in the field. And that's what Atlanta promises. And that's why he wins. Um, It's, it's basically a given at that point. Um, But there's an operational cost to Atlanta as well for the Confederate army. They've now lost their manufacturing city. They've lost another depot city. Uh, all, so all the food that is there, stores of, of food, uh, arms manufacturers, cannon foundries, and not to mention, it's a railroad junction. Mm. So all the railroads that would be bringing supplies and troops and ammunition, they're all cut off now. Uh, and, and Hood is left just south of the city looking in saying, I'd like to go back there. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> And, and they're, they're fighting around the city. And, and the idea from that point for Hood is to move Sherman out of the way, cut one of his supply lines, and just keep waging war on the railroad tracks that run through, run into Atlanta in an attempt to frustrate Sherman, bring him out of the city. Hood can attack Sherman, beat him, and take the city back. That's lofty uh, at best. And, and, and Sherman will even look at, at, at this decision to go with Hood over Johnston and say, I, I do not know what Hood will do, but at least Johnston was a reasonable man and Hood is not. Uh, I paraphrased a little bit, but that mm. gives you the kind of the gist of, the, of the, the quote is Sherman is sort of hands in the air saying, I don't know what the hell this guy is going to do next. Um, but once the city falls, he's able to start looking further into 64. And this is, again, like I said, it's the year of reckoning. Uh, and, and Sherman will leave Atlanta in November and begin his march to the sea. Uh, and he will march from Atlanta to Savannah and arrive there just in time to present the city of Savannah to Abraham Lincoln as a Christmas gift. And while he's on the march to the sea, John Bell Hood is march. I, I love to use this line. Sherman is marching to the sea and John Bell Hood is leading his army to eternity um, because they, they march into, into the state of Tennessee. They try to capture the city of Nashville. And the idea of going to Nashville is that uh, if you capture Nashville, you can control the Columbia, the, 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 the uh, Cumberland and Tennessee rivers. You can get some supplies and enlist more troops from Tennessee and rebuild the army get reinforcements, get resupplied, and you can move from Nashville and go and help Robert E. Lee in Virginia. And that's this sort of long-term idea. Again, that's lofty. And it's even more lofty when you consider that Sherman left his best commander to go and defend Nashville, uh, George Thomas. He's the, the rock of Chickamauga. He gets that reputation in, in September of 1863, and then in December of 1864, he'll get to add Sledge of Nashville onto his list of nicknames. Is he not also supposedly the greatest Union general nobody has heard of? Nobody I, being all the British people listening to this podcast. You can you can <laughs> tattoo that on my forehead and put it on my gravestone. Yes. 
Absolutely. Um, there, he's a, he's a, a Virginian, so he's a Southerner. Um, but when the war breaks out, he says, basically, I took an oath to the United States and I'm staying with the Union Army. Um, and he does. And he fights really, really well. Um, George Thomas is a, he's criticized a lot for being too conservative. He's not aggressive on the battlefield. Uh, he doesn't attack but he doesn't do things that he doesn't need to do. If the, the army doesn't need to be engaged, he doesn't engage. He's smart. Uh, common sense. Right. He's in, he, and, and the men of the army of the Cumberland love him. They call the, he's got all kinds of names. Uh, Pap Thomas is right at the top of it. it. It shows their affection for him. And he, he's got this, you know, the, the, the the thing I love to throw out when people start talking about how great Sherman and Grant are is George Thomas, when in command of an army or in command of the, the troops deployed, never loses a battle. Mm. He's, he's undefeated. Uh, George undefeated Thomas might be a better, a better nickname altogether, but he's left to defend Nashville and he gets there and there's only about, maybe 5,000 at best 8,000 men there to defend it against hoods, 30, 31,000 soldiers that are marching into or marching to Nashville. But by December the 15th, when the attack begins, he's got over 55,000 soldiers and he's able to just smash John Bell hoods army in their own earthworks. Thomas comes out of the city, bombards them with artillery and then overwhelms them with this huge, huge army formation um and that's that's where the 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 real turning point is you you lose the confederate army of tennessee at nashville uh they marched in with about thirty-one thousand, thirty-three thousand soldiers they marched into tennessee they crossed the tennessee river and when they get to tupelo mississippi after uh, a month and a half campaign they're just just above sixteen thousand altogether um, and that's not counting for guys that have been killed, wounded, and, and captured uh, that are missing from the rolls. It might be in field hospitals. Uh, their estimated strength might be about 20,000 at best after, after the Tennessee campaign is over. And that takes away their ability to really wage war. They can't go on the offensive against Sherman, not with 75,000 men under Sherman's command. They certainly can't hold their own on a battlefield like that. But these are the guys that had enlisted in 61 and are going to see this thing through to the end. They're not going home. So these 16,000, 20,000 guys go to positions in, in the, on the Gulf. They fight at Fort Blakely and Fort Gaines and Fort Morgan, or I'm sorry, Fort Blakely anyhow, uh, in, in April of 1865. They're with Joe Johnston when he surrenders the army in Bentonville or at, at, at Bennett Place in North Carolina on April the 26th. Uh, they, they're bitter enders and they, they, they haven't given up thus far and they don't do it then either. So tell us in a nutshell why everyone should pay more attention to the Western theater of war. Yeah. Um, it, it is the place where the decisions that have been made in Washington, DC, uh, it is the place where, uh, combat on the ground and it is the place where, uh, all of the strategic and operational uh, uh, components of the war come together. 
Um, it is the, the, really the culmination of Winfield Scott's Anaconda plan. You've blockaded the eastern seaboard in the Gulf of Mexico. You've plunged down the Mississippi River, and now you've stabbed in to the, the heartland of the Confederacy. And by doing that, you've won the war, and you've done it principally with three guys, excuse me, or four guys, uh, Farragut, Grant, Sherman, and George Thomas. And they, they have collectively taken New Orleans, capital city, big city, jewel of the South, taken Vicksburg, opens up the Mississippi River, taken Atlanta, takes away the manufacturing uh, uh, capabilities of the Confederate government, in, at least in the West, and then finally defeated the, an army in the field in, in, at Nashville in December of 1864. So this whole... Uh, whole resulting uh, casualties, all of the cost of equipment and the, and the supply lines that are cut, not to mention the political victories that are secured in Atlanta that win Abraham Lincoln's reelection, that is the reason that the war ends the way it does. Um, that's the reason for a union victory at the end. That's the, the reason that we are the, the country. However uh, messed up things may be, over the next 150 years, that's the reason that we are the country we are today is that the, the, the Civil War defines us. And it's really the victories that are won in the West that help mm. make that victory possible. I'm going to get a T-shirt made with Screw, Gret- Screw Gettysburg put on it. Um, I, I, I've often called, there's, there's a Civil War battle that I study here in the Western Theater. It's the Battle of Franklin. And every July 3rd, at, at three o'clock when they celebrate the uh, pickets charge on, on, on the final day at Gettysburg, I call it the, the Franklin of the East. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. Joseph, before you go, tell everyone what homebrew history is, where they can listen to it and how you do things. Yeah. So uh, my, my co-host and I, Bo Trissler, uh, we're on homebrew history. It's a relatively new podcast you can't say that we came about just because of the coronavirus uh we had actually planned on doing this two years ago and uh the virus actually just presented the perfect opportunity for us both to be locked in a house and uh able to record basically (laughs) yeah really um so we've got 13 episodes out now and if you want some of the the most um uh, many, many of the like the really authoritative names in in history, particularly around the Second World War, uh, we've got them. We've had James Holland and and Peter Caddick Adams on the show. Um, you like explosions and you like talking guns. We've had we've got our, our firearm specialist is actually linked to the show now. Uh, Marty Morgan is a friend of the pod, and uh, we're we're both military historians by training, and uh, we, he's got this you know, old South to the, the cold war and I'm your, your civil war and, and second world war guy. And we talk uh, revolution all the way through to, to current events really. Um, so again, that's homebrew history. We release an episode every Tuesday and uh, constantly looking for people to come on the show and always uh, looking for more listeners. Joseph, thank you so much for coming on and giving us such a comprehensive overview of what I am utterly convinced by you is the most important side of the American civil war. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. appreciate it. Can't wait to listen to some more episodes from y'all. Join us tomorrow when we have a sharp special for you. Not only 
do we have two Wellingtons, that's Hugh Fraser and David Troughton? Not only do we have Theresa, Assumpta Serna, and Harry Price, Scott Cleverdon, not only do we have Brian Cox with us as well and the lovely Jason Salkey, but we have Paul McGann and he will be talking to us about how he basically did a third of the filming for the first series of Sharp before fate intervened and Sean Bean ended up flying out to take his place. So if you've never heard him talk about that, tune in because it is fascinating. Fascinating. Don't forget, you can become a patron of History Hack for as little as a dollar a month. Just go to www.historyhack.podbean.com. It will help us keep going in the aftermath of the coronavirus, and we would really appreciate it, as we would love to do so. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.